150 years ago, our nation was deep in the throes of the era we know now as Reconstruction. It was, as many have noted, a contentious period in American history. In addition to the need to repair a divided nation, another chief concern of that period was how to ensure the citizenship rights of African-Americans. For many, an economic stake in the nation's future was essential for their citizenship to carry any meaning. Bailey Wyatt, a newly freed African-American, made this point clear. Speaking before a political convention in Virginia, he said, we now as a people desire to be elevated and we desire to do all we can to be educated and we hope our friends will aid us all they can. We may state to our friends and to all of our enemies that we have a right to the land where we are located. Why? I tell you, he said, our wives, our children, our husbands have been sold over and over again to purchase the lands that we now live on. For this reason, we have a divine right to the land, end quote. Was Wyatt right? As recent conversations around the issue of reparations show, this still haunts us. Was there a debt, as President Lincoln seemed to suggest in his second inaugural address, that was owed to the former enslaved whose labor had ensured the nation's economic wealth? The most recent episode of the Waters and Harvey Show was an abbreviated version of a live event that Marcus and I hosted on the topic of reparations. That show was prompted by the passage of a reparations re resolution by the city of Asheville in 2020. Today, we will reflect and follow up on some of the questions and ideas that the live show raised. We'll be joined by Dr. Meredith Doster, Dr. Ryan Emanuel, and Ms. Angie Flynn McEver. What might these conversations around reparations hold for us as a community, as a state, and as a nation? We look forward to having you with us today. Welcome to another episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. I am Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. And it's great to be here with you all again. Thank you all for taking the time to join us in these continued conversations around, Marcus, I believe, really important community. And I guess I would say state and national level uh, issues that are very important to us today. Yeah, um, I don't know if there's uh, right now any more pressing um, issue uh, or, or conversation uh, going on right now, other than the conversation around reparations. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that this is something that we we um, we have to address. Right. Yeah. You know, Marcus, I want to say at the outset here, you know, I uh, recently there are a couple of dates that uh, just stick out in my mind. One in particular here. Um, one is that 2026 is coming. It's coming very quickly. That will be the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It will be the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution. It's going to be interesting to see how the nation is really going to kind of the nation and the state and we as a local community will be thinking about uh, that moment in our history. How will we commemorate and celebrate uh, that momentous period in American history? Um, and I also think that it's interesting, Marcus, that this is going to occur 
right as we begin to come to the end of what will really be the 150th sesquicentennial commemoration of American Reconstruction. So we've started this show out talking about Reconstruction. I find it very interesting that not a lot of people are talking about the fact that if we were to go back in time 150 years, we would be right in the middle of the Reconstruction period. And it's interesting that we're not really talking about that. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, when I think about the the upcoming anniversary of the American Revolution, um, I think about the fact that, uh, you know, African-Americans fought in every single American war. Um, I think about the fact that uh, shortly after the end of the American Revolutionary War, um, African-Americans were uh, swiftly uh, re-enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about the fact that the gains of the of Revolutionary War uh, were not experienced by the African-Americans who, who fought in the same war. Um, and, you know, I also think about uh, something that we've discussed on the show quite a bit um, involving the Reconstruction, and that is the backlash Right, that the backlash that African Americans experienced, uh, particularly after, particularly uh, beginning in the late 1870s, 1880s, um, as a result of the 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 significant gains, right, that African Americans, especially in the South, um, were making after 1865, right. So gaining political office, mm-hmm. um, finding ways to educate their family, right, um, finding ways in some cases to even um, acquire land. Um, and it is is it is in response to those gangs that we see the rise of, you know, white supremacist terrorist groups, right? Mm-hmm. The, Knight, the Knights of the White Camellia, the KKK, um, the Red Shirts, and others. And so, um, you know, and thinking about these these upcoming um, anniversaries, uh, I I can't help but to think about um, the the violence that they um, that they um, uh, that those histories uh, involve vis-a-vis mm-hmm. uh, the experience of African-Americans. Right. And you know, Mar- yeah, you, Marcus, you're absolutely right. And what is interesting to me as we think about this, that in a way that while as a nation, we may not be formally um, commemorating this period of Reconstruction, I'm going to say that informally it is being remembered. When we think about the conversations that are happening around reparations, the conversations that are happening around the legacy of the American Civil War, the legacy of the Confederacy. So it's interesting for me as a historian to think that we are witness a witnessing a new reconstruction, a reconstruction, I would argue, of the narrative of this period in American history. So you and I, you know, let's let's talk for a brief minute because I, you know, uh, we haven't had a lot of time, you and I, to kind of really debrief about the, the last live uh, show that we did. I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting, Marcus, um, you, you know, you and I get a bit keyed up for those for those uh, for those events because we know that they're live. Um, what were your thoughts? How did you come away from uh from the last experience well i i i will i'll be the first to admit that um going into that that live event on reparations and its connections to to racial justice um i wasn't quite sure how the conversation would go right Mm -hmm. i know that it's a very fraught topic um i know that it is a it is an issue that um uh americans do not agree on 
Um, so I really wasn't sure how the conversation would go. Um, having said that, though, with respect to the contributions that the panelists made, um, I was quite impressed. Um, and there mm -hmm. were there were a few points that 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 really struck me that uh, that I continue to think about. Um, mm -hmm. um, one had to do with um, city man city manager um, asphalt city manager Deborah Campbell's point that uh, democracy <laughs> or civic engagement is a contact sport. Right. right. I, I love I love that kind of analogy. Right. Which sort of which sort of reminds us that that civic engagement um, or the practice of democracy um, involves getting your hands dirty. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to you have to do the hard work of 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 studying other people's experiences, trying to understand those experiences, asking hard questions, asking hard conversations, not shying away from all of that. It's a contact sport. Um, uh, another important point that, that stands out to me is a point made by attorney James Ferguson about or uh, in response to the whole issue of or the question of what is justice and and uh, Ferguson says, you know, well, I'm not sure how to answer that question because we've never seen justice. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I think was a was a profound um, thing to consider, because I think I think uh, oftentimes there is an assumption in American society that that we can point to specific episodes in American history where justice was enacted. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, um, in a way that is that is um, incontrovertible. Ferguson is saying no uh, from from an African-American perspective. Uh, there is no point in history where we can point to and say, oh, you know, African-Americans actually experienced justice mm -hmm. um, in, in a clear way. So uh, that that point sort of um, was or those th th those two points, but, but particularly um, James Ferguson's point about justice um, uh, were, you know, were, uh, were, were very sort of haunting moments for me, um, mm -hmm. haunting in a good way, but haunting moments for me from that conversation that I mm -hmm. hope our listeners um really latched on to uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and are continuing to wrestle with. Well, Marcus and I want to take the time to thank you all as members of the audience uh, who are always with us for joining that conversation. We know that many of you were, there were a number of you in the audience that night. Many of you also submitted comments and, and, um, and kind of comments and questions even before the show, because Marcus and I were asking you all to consider two questions. And those questions, as Marcus raised one of those questions here was what is justice and the other question was what form of reparations will bring racial justice so we want to thank you for the comments that you all shared with us many of you all shared comments that were quite lengthy and we are sharing those because we do want those comments to be available are those ideas that you all sent to us to be made available to the commission that will eventually be uh seated to um to look into how the city of Asheville uh, rolls out a program of reparations here. So we're going to be in making sure that that's made available to uh, to people who will be working on that commission. But Marcus, you know, I think to myself, you know, as I thought about those two questions and we did make this point on the show that that question about justice kind of emanated or it kind of emerged from your and my thinking about the American Constitution itself. And we referenced the Constitution that night in reading the first few words of the Constitution and what it said that we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. So as a nation, as a community, as a country, 
what how do we define and marcus i think that this is a this is probably a show for us to dig deeper into this question of how do we define justice yeah but as we were thinking about this show and prepping for this show two additional questions kind of emerged for me especially out of that second out of that second question that we asked about reparations and racial justice and those two questions for me is there a need for us to think about racial justice and why is there a need for us to think about racial justice in our country now we have a lot of people marcus and i want to i want to tee this up for you and just let you uh go ahead and take a big swing at this one because we have talked about this privately those who emphasize to us the need to be a colorblind society so why do you continue to talk about race and brother you know go right ahead and share your response i yeah i i would just say um i i think that um I think that the suggesting the suggestion that um, uh, that we can think or talk about um, American society uh, in a colorblind way or in a way that does not involve race is tantamount to trying to study study to, to trying to study marine biology um, without the ocean, right? right? <laughs> um, and, and and what I mean by that is that uh, you know American life. Um, America's socio-political history has always been um, decisively uh, shaped and informed by the mythology of race. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we, regardless of one's um, ethnic identity in this country, we're always, all the time, swimming um, in in racialized realities. And so, I, I think that you know, um, you know, this is something that is that is just unavoidable. Um, Unfortunately, um, I, I would also say that on the on the question of justice, brother, that uh, you know, I, um, I, I get, I get, I get the, the need to to think about justice on sort of a, a legal theoretical level and sort mm-hmm. of philosophize about justice and you know what does it mean and what should it look like. But you know, I'm 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 drifting more and more in a direction that that wants to just firmly assert that, look, justice needs to include stuff. It needs mm-hmm. to involve stuff, <laughs> stuff, right? Um, we, we live in um, a capitalist society, right? Uh, for better or worse, that is the reality. Um, capital is required to survive in our society, mm-hmm. uh, to thrive, to, to, to gain wealth. Um, and, and, you know, when I think about justice, um, and I'm not saying that this is this is an exemplary expression of, of, of an attempt at justice, but it, it's something that comes to mind. So I think about General William Tecumseh Sherman's um, attempted order, Field Order 15. Mm-hmm. Right? So this mm-hmm. is in 1865, for those who don't know. Um, the Civil War ends, and General Sherman attempts to um, essentially confiscate right lands that formerly belonged to slave owners and then give 40 acres um, to uh, to newly emancipated slaves, right? I think this was an early attempt at at material justice, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what happened shortly thereafter is President Andrew Johnson rescinds Order 15, and all mm-hmm. of that land is given right back to uh, you know the the former slave owners. And so and so, I think that you know we is again, I understand the important to cons- the importance of conceptualizing justice, of philosophizing. Um, justice, but but we have to also make sure that our conversations about justice 
are grounded, right, mm-hmm, are, are mm-hmm. tethered to on the ground realities mm-hmm. and tethered to concrete policy policies that will result in in um in, in for in, in the case of African Americans and African Americans getting stuff, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. you know we could we can talk about that, critique that, but you know I, I'm I'm. I find myself more inclined these days to want to talk about justice in, I guess, in somewhat more more simplistic terms. Right, right, right. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, Marcus. What is clear to me as we, we continue to talk about this is that this is really going to be an ongoing conversation. We're not going to be through this quickly. We will be talking about this for a while. And I think it's interesting for us to think about, you know, as, as a nation, as a community, as a state, you know, what, what do we want? You know, what do we really want the community to look like? You and I have been asking the framing questions of who are we and who do we wish and desire to be? You know, in many ways, this conversation around reparations and and issues of justice might be actually discussed in the framework of those questions as well. You know, so we we should um, I think that as we move forward, that is something for us to think about. And so as we as we continue with the show, we want to remind you that you're listening to the Waters and Harvest show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. And we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Waters and Harvey Show. We're talking about justice and reparations with members of the William C. Friday Fellowship for Human Relations. And so, Marcus, you know, you and I could go on and on about this, you know, for a while. This is the first opportunity that we've had to get into kind of a reflection mode about that live episode, uh, that live show that we did on this question. But I'm really glad, and I know that both you and I are honored and really pleased to be joined by three special guests. So this is kind of a special show today to to think about this this issue of reparations. Now, one voice you're going to know, Meredith Doster, and Meredith is becoming, Dr. Meredith Doster is becoming a popular uh, addition to the show. Marcus, we may just have to find a place for uh, permanently from, for Meredith on the show. Um, I'm hearing from people, I just love Meredith. And Meredith and I have the opportunity to work together in the, with the William C. Friday uh, Fellowship. Meredith is the lead faculty member. I am just kind of helping to support her work. Um, and we work very well together. So Meredith, we're pleased to have you back in the conversation today. Why don't you jump in here and just say hello? Hey, thank you so much. <laughs> it's great to be back. It's always a privilege to join you in conversation. And I enjoy taking so many notes while I listen to your opening <laughs> conversations. I learn a lot just being in community with each of you. And I'm so pleased to be joined today by two colleagues and fellows in our mm-hmm. current class. I know, Darren, you'll be introducing Ryan and Angie momentarily. Um, but it's just, this is a Uh, an important conversation to be having. I'm just mindful that the fellowship, the working definition of fellowship that we're really workshopping with the current class, it coheres around a set of practices and dispositions that I think are not unrelated to a practice of reparation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, much like resurrection isn't a one and done sort of deal. I think reparation requires a lifelong disposition of writing and relating. And so I'm curious to be thinking together about how relationship is also potentially a carrier for a practice of reparation. Although I'm really mindful, Marcus, of your attention to the material, right? But also the things and also the stuff. And how do we um, enact 
uh, justice that shows up materially uh, in, in different kinds of ways. And one thing I'll just mark and note, I have been so, I've just noted, I've heard um, over the conversation, the question of land ownership. How do we also speak to this, this ongoing um, struggle to, to think about what ownership of land means in the context of this country? And I'll just be eager for our conversation to take other perspectives into account as well. What does it mean to own land and to be an owner and an owner citizen of this country? I'll be curious to hear from my colleagues on that front as well. It's always a privilege to be back. There's more I could say, um, but I'll look forward to, to just listening in primarily today to make sure there's enough room for other voices. Okay, great. It's good to have you here, Meredith. Thanks for being back with us, brother. I'll turn it over to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for that, Meredith. It's always nice to have you to have you with us. Um, so as Darren mentioned earlier, we have with us um, two additional um, Friday fellows, uh, Miss Angie Flynn McKeever. So just a quick, a few words about um, about Angie. She's president of Ignite uh, CSP. CSP stands for Coaching, Speaking, and Presenting. And this is a communication and coaching group that helps people make a fundamental shift in the way they understand their own power to communicate. Uh, she's a resident of Asheville, and she volunteers with the Buncombe County Remembrance Project and sits on the board of the North Carolina Stage uh, Company. We also have with us Dr. Ryan Emanuel. He's a citizen of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina and a first-generation urban Indian. He's also associate professor in the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources and affiliated with the Center for Geospatial Analytics at North Carolina State University. Um, so we're happy to have um, Dr. Emmanuel uh, and Mrs. Uh, and Mrs. Angie Flynn McKeever uh, here with us today. Uh, I think what we what we like to do, just by way of starting this conversation mm-hmm. um, with, with all of you, is just to, to sort of just ask uh, you, Angie, and you, Dr. Um, Emmanuel, to just reflect a little bit um, on what your experience thus far as Friday Fellows um, has been like. Right, you both are involved in sort of different areas of of, of work that I think converge on um, different forms of community building, perhaps, if that's fair to say. So just curious to hear to, to hear from both of you um, on, on uh, in response to that question. Ryan, I answer whoever yeah. wants to jump in. Go ahead. I'm, I'm happy to jump in. I'm also happy for y'all to call me Ryan today. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Uh, well, Ryan, I, Ryan, let me let me let me just warn you. you know, Marcus likes to be called Doctor Harvey. <laughs> no, <laughs> Marcus is fine. Marcus. <laughs> you know, I I spend uh, a lot of my time around um, academics, and uh, when I think about relationship building with other academics, um, there's there's a there are particular ceremonies that go along with that, and particular rituals. One thing that I really value about the Friday Fellowship Program is that I'm now getting to spend time with people um, who who work in all different areas and who contribute in many different ways, um, and it it really shakes up the the the, the rituals of academia um, and, and puts me more in touch with. Um, uh, the, the relationship building aspects um, of, of what it means to be in community with people. And so listening, um, getting to know, um, you know what other people are interested in and sort of what their passions are has been um, a really important part of the fellowship program for me um, and just making me conscious about what it means to engage actively um, in relationships and relationship building and to do it in a way that that 
moves outside of my my comfort zone of academia. Mm-hmm. That's been that's been really rewarding to me. Thank you, Ryan and Angie. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It is uh, a privilege and an honor to be here with all of you. I agree with Ryan. I, I think we all come from our bubbles of of ritual and tradition and habit and practice. And to be able to cross-pollinate with people all over the state who are doing all kinds of different uh, wonderful work is, is enlivening and enriching. I'll also say one of the things that has been, I, I guess, startling to me in, a, in the most wonderful way is the the deep generosity and vulnerability that mm. every person in the fellowship has shown up with really from day one. And I, I give the faculty, uh, Meredith and Darren, both of you and, and the rest of the Friday Fellowship um, folks, a, a lot of credit for creating the space that allowed us to show up in that way. Uh, because in, in other places, in other groups I've been in, it takes a long, long time to get to that place of trust, to be able to, as Ryan was said, really be able to show up and, and listen wholeheartedly and to to lower our defenses in some way. But uh, I feel like it happened with this group really early on. Mm-hmm. And um, and that is only strengthening as time goes on. All right. You know, so Angie, you know, you, you and Ryan are raising a couple of questions here. I mean, a, a couple of ideas and thoughts in my head. I think an important word Angie, for me, that you just raised is this issue of trust. Um, there's a lot of distrust in our communities today. And, I, and I'm wondering from you all's perspective, and Marcus and Meredith, please feel free to jump in here as well. You know, w- what can we do to kind of um, to minimize the distrust that has been built up among different groups of people? Because we're talking about reparations here and the issue of reparations, but it seems to me that for us to move anywhere on this question, that trust is going to have to be a piece of that, a piece of that conversation. So I'm just wondering from you all, you know, what what do you think? Uh, what do we need to be thinking about as a larger community, uh, you know, just here, maybe locally in Asheville. I know, Ryan, you are not here. You're down in the Triangle area. And let me say this. One of the things that Marcus and I have deeply appreciated about the conversations that we get to have with you all and your colleagues in the fellowship is that we're talking up to people across the state of North Carolina. So this is not just isolated locally here to Western North Carolina, Asheville, where we're located, but we get to see what's happening across the state. But I'm curious to hear from you all. What do you think? What what are we going to do? What needs to be done to kind of minimize? And is it possible for us to minimize some of the, the distrust that has been built up within our communities? Well, you know, one thing that I, um, have thought about during the fellowship experience is that trust is uh, being vulnerable Um, and and being vulnerable means opening yourself up to being hurt or offended or something like this. Um, And that, that's something that, that we have to let go of, whether it's a conversation about reparations um, or some other important topic is the, the fear that we hold on to um, about, about uh, being done wrong or being hurt. Um, that's that, that, that comes with let, uh, letting your guard down, um, trusting and being vulnerable and being, being willing to, to walk into a conversation or a relationship, um, with your hands out and, and 
Um, you know, and, right. and with all, all of that vulnerability in place. And Angie, I know you're probably jumping here too, and then Marcus is going too. But right, it, there, there's something interesting for me, you know, studying American history. And I, I know that it, it seems to me that community, community has been done different in Native American communities. And what I appreciate about Marcus's work is that Marcus has, uh, you know, studying the uh, indigenous religious traditions of in um, in Africa has shown me through our conversations how community looks very different there. And I know it, you don't have to address this now, Ryan, but I, I would be curious in exploring later on, what do you think that we as a country can learn from studying those perspectives on how community has been done in Native American communities and and even Marcus from your from your uh from your perspective, but whoever wants to go next. Yeah, Angie, feel free if you want to go. I don't want sure. To go. I was just going to share uh, uh, one of the books that I refer to often in my work uh, talks about the idea that communication and conversation is really only happening truly and deeply when we are willing to have our minds changed. And, and this came to my mind, Ryan, when you were talking just now, and I I think that that really requires such honesty with ourselves about what our agenda is. And if and, and when we are honest with ourselves, I think we find, oh, I am showing up with an agenda. I don't really want to have my mind changed. I already know how I want to feel about whatever, fill in the blank. But when we can come to this place of, okay, let me drop the agenda or let me put it to the side. I might want to pick it back up again later, but for the purposes of this conversation to put that agenda aside and truly listen and truly be willing to hear a different perspective, that's where that growth and that connection can start to happen. And that's where I think we can start to change minds, but not when we show up with that agenda intact and, and defended. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say quickly, and I, you know, I won't, I won't, um, I, I don't want to overshare or, or um, here, but, I think that one of the difficulties in addressing the question of um, of how how to cultivate trust, how to build community, um, how to how to uh, sort of facilitate um, trusting conversations, um, it has to do with the fact that. Um, and brother, you know, I, I can't help but to take a long view here. I've learned this from, from you. I, I just do this. And so, but I can't help but think about the fact that, um, I, you know, I, I think about this language of we the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what is ironic about that language to me is that embedded in it um, is a kind of principle of community that is exclusive, not inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so we, the people, from a constitutional perspective, it seems to me, um, implies uh, it, it implies um, a kind of society that is um, that 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 ends up being essentially a racial caste system, right? And I think that I think that the more honest we are about that, uh, the closer we can get to having, um, to Angie's point, uh, and also to, to Ryan's point honest, vulnerable, empathic conversations, right? Um, right. With folks in the community, in American society and in our immediate community here in Asheville and elsewhere um, who have been excluded from the principle of we the people, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think unless we can be honest about that, um, then I, I don't know that there is any 
um, any any possibility of building trust right mm-hmm. across the chasms of difference, across the chasms of um, different different historical experiences in this country, right um, across other chasms like you know for instance um, the the racial wealth gap, etc. Uh, and so yeah, my my mind uh, immediately sort of goes there and thinking about um, uh, this issue of trust. The last thing that I would say quickly is that uh, I think that one of the one of the essential ingredients um, in building trust is is, and I think this was this was implicit in, in both in Ryan's and Angie's um, comments is patience, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that you know we 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 do live, and this may sound you know um, uh, basic to the point of being trite, but I think it's it, it's still important to, to to make this to make this this point. Um, I, I think that we live in a society where um, where there there is. There is more patience for some voices, less patience for other voices, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And uh, as long as we have this kind of inequity as far as patience is concerned, as far as hearing from a plurality of voices, um, again, you know, the building of trust will, will, will continue to frustrate our efforts to build community, right? We mm-hmm. have to also, and I think that involves internal work, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so oh, absolutely. Like turning inward and examining ourselves and being honest about um, what voices we are patient with mm-hmm. and what voices we are impatient with, right? right. Um, and so I, I think that this, this, this labor of building trust, trust is both intrinsic to us as individuals and, and also extrinsic mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, it involves, um, um, you know, uh, those, those outside of us as well. Right. So, you know, so Marcus, I think that you're right. So Angie and Ryan, since we're kind of walking through the fellowship together, I mean, I'm, I'm there as a participant with you all in the fellowship. I think that Marcus has kind of hit upon one of the things that I feel is central to the fellowship, right? We is the inward reflection and the outward reflections, being patient, as Marcus has actually said. I mean, I think that it, that point are stressing that has been important to the ultimate goal of building a stronger sense of shared community among those of us who are going through the fellowship, hoping that that would translate to the communities where we're actually living. So here's my question for you as we sit here and we talk about this issue of reparations, because both you, both Angie, both you and Ryan had an opportunity to listen to the show that Marcus and I did, the live version of that show. And I'm wondering from your perspective, do you think that conversations around reparations might be a gateway into helping us build a stronger sense of community, not only in our local communities, but across the state of North Carolina? And then maybe ultimately, if we have the courage to have that conversation nationally, maybe even as a national community. I love the idea that it that it could be. The, one of the things I, I loved about what Marcus said is is what Meredith echoed this idea that that it this is this has got to get material. This has got to be something that we start to feel, and and I and I do think that there is something. So there can be something tangible about even the conversation about reparations, and mm-hmm. that that can be a lever to uh, opening up conversations about other things. If, as we've all uh, touched on and, and talked about explicitly, if we can put these other things into place, if we can uh, be patient, if we can interrogate ourselves about where we are patient, where we are not patient, where we are holding on to our agenda, where we are li- willing to listen, where we are empathetic and where we are not. Um, I, I, 
I love the idea of it being a gateway. Um, I have a little trepidation. It is a something of a, you know, it's a, it's a tough conversation to have, but mm -hmm. I, yeah, I like, I love the idea of it opening up even bigger conversations. Mm -hmm. Follow up uh, on what Angie said. I, I think that the, the, I like what you said, Angie, about the conversation around reparations being important. And to me, um, that's a that's a little window into what justice can look like. One thing that that also struck me about the panel was this conversation of what what does justice look like, and mm -hmm. you all summarized that earlier. Um, but I, I, I'm really interested in the the procedures and the protocols about how we make decisions. And my my work involves mm -hmm. environmental decision making. But there are um, there are levers of justice within those processes, and I would I would map those onto discussions around reparations as well. Who's in the room? Who do we pay attention to, and who do we exclude? Um, these are important um, justice-oriented questions. Well, again, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Watterson Harvey Show. We're talking about justice and reparations with members of the William C. Friday Fellowship for Human Relations. We're glad to have you back, Marcus. I don't know if there's something here that you want to jump into, but I, I am interested in hearing from, from both Ryan and Angie. And Ryan, I, you know, specifically for you, you know, being a member of the Lumbee, uh, of the Lumbee uh, tribe, you know, how do you, this question of reparations, has it come up among the Lumbee as well? I'm sure Marcus and I have a close colleague here at UNC Asheville who is a member of, uh, is a member of the Cherokee uh, Nation. And I know that we've had those conversations with him before. And I'm wondering what they look like for you, for you all in the Lumbee tribe. I think you could, you could put some of our conversations in this general category but I, I would say that they're maybe framed a little bit um, differently. Mm. Prior generations, my grandparents and my parents' generations, you know, they were focused on um, equity and education. And so mm. for them uh, uh, to see um, educational facilities, schools, and then finally the integration of schools um, and things like this were, were um, powerful ends that they wanted to accomplish. Younger people uh, in the community are talking about things like um, the, the, the return of land to indigenous peoples. And this is not just a Lumbee conversation. This is happening you know, through, throughout many tribes um, uh, in the in the U.S., there's this theme of of land back, and what does that look like? How do you do that? Um, again, one other thing that I really appreciated in the panel was the idea that that whatever this looks like is going to be highly localized. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and you know, in, in the Lumbee community, what does that look like um, for people who were we were knit together by the forces of colonialism, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like. Many of our native traditions, our language, our customs, those were those were taken away from us through pretty traumatic uh, and violent events. 
Um, and, and, you know, we, we came together and we created uh, new communities, new traditions there in the, in the swamps of Robinson County. Um, and so, you know, what, what, what does it look like for us? Um, that's a, that's a conversation that I think changes from generation to generation. But I will say there have been strong themes of um, equity and education and opportunity in past generations. And I think that young people today are still kind of grappling with what it looks like for them um, in the 21st century. Yeah, that's that's such a great uh, great points, Ryan. And I'm I'm before I uh, pose a question to Angie, I'm 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 just I'm I'm just thinking about the fact that um, you know. Uh, this 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 question of or the, this conversation around, around reparations, um, it, it, it's and, and I, I think this came up in the in the live the live event um, that we that we held um, to some degree, but I, I I think that what is useful about having um, conversations about reparations is that um, it, it has the potential to to contextually educate the broader public about the need for reparations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but I think it's also, but I, but I think it's also very easy in our society to rest comfortably, comfortably in conversations, right? So mm-hmm. we just, so we just kind of get caught in this loop of having conversation after conversation after conversation that never eventuates in action, right? Mm-hmm. That tangibly benefits a community. And so I think that, you know, I think part of what is uh, perhaps a bit um, um, uncomfortable, uncomfortable about the conversations that are being had that are being had now around reparations is that there is a sense that, OK, now something needs to happen. Right. We, we, we can't just sort of rest in these conversations and sort of pretend that, oh, yeah, you know, we're you know, we, we, we take this seriously now, you know, action is kind of being being demanded. So but um, I, but in thinking about that, I'm also thinking about I'm, th- I'm thinking I'm thinking also about um, a point that, that Angie has made here about the importance of of making the reparations question personal. Right. Um, I, I think it's very easy to uh, to sort of sit back, especially if you if you're a member of a community that is unaffected by this this question, to sort of sit back and just and just and think about this um, at a distance and say, oh yeah, you know that's really important, um, and I, I really hope that something is done to redress um, right the uh, the the wrongs of American chattel slavery, for example. Um, and I'll do what I can, but but I think what you're raising, Angie, about personalizing this question is is, a, is another kind of, of, of conversation. So I'm curious to hear from you about more about what you meant um, in, in suggesting that Angie. I guess for me, when I look at, when we talk about racial justice and when we talk about racial equity, and those are so huge, those umbrellas cover so many categories of inequity that, that we can look at um, we can look at statistics and we can look at data and we can look at actual people who we know who are experiencing, right? When I say we, I'm talking about white people like me, right? We can look at this. And in order to start to grapple with that, for me, it is not enough to look at, oh, my government is going to take care of this. When I read the the proclamation that uh, Asheville made, like, great. I'm, I'm glad, obviously, I'm glad that we're doing that. It is, I guess, a step in the right direction. But it's almost like you're saying, Marcus, it's, it is a form of conversation. It is words on paper. It is not, it is leading to a commission and then we hope things will come out of that. But what does that mean for me as a resident of Buncombe County? What does it mean for me as a North Carolinian? What does it mean for me as a white person? 
I, I want to take that personally and do that intrinsic work that you're describing to figure out what is the, what does that turn into? Where does, what is the output of that for me? I think that when we say, oh, the government is taking care of it. Well, that, that lets me off the hook. Even if, even if I have to pay a higher property tax, Mm -hmm. that lets me off the hook. I get to, I get to not, not do any of that tough work that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I feel like, I feel like we are, I feel like I am on the hook for Mm -hmm. that. I feel like I am on the hook for those very uncomfortable conversations and that very uncomfortable action. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what that looks like yet, but it, it sounds, I am very grateful to being able to have these conversations because I feel like that that's starting that momentum. Yeah, and, and, and if, if I could just interject this before I give it back to to, to, to Darren, I mean, I'm I'm thinking about the fact that uh, you know there there are, in my opinion, concrete examples that we could point to in history, um, in, in local context, right, where um, communities groups made you know tangible decisions around reparations. So I'm thinking about what the Quakers, so, so what are Quakers doing in the 1780s in places like New York, New England, Baltimore? They're making membership contingent upon, um, um, upon compensation of slaves, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, that, so, so that to me, and, and this, is in the, this is in the early 1780s. Mm-hmm. So all I'm saying is that there, there are specific concrete examples that we can point to um, in different localities where, where groups are making decisions about what what it will mean what it what it will mean in their um, environment mm-hmm. uh, to 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 um, what reparations will mean in their environment. So yeah, I, we so we shouldn't. I think um, uh, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that it's not the case that we can't point to you know examples in American history where right. where local communities, local organizations, local groups um, are finding ways to right. to tangibly um, bring about um, some degree of reparations for, yeah. for impacted communities. And, Mar- and Marcus, it occurs to me as you make that point and we think about uh, you know what the Quakers were doing, that there was also this very strong sense of community among Quakers. Right. It, because of that, doing this hard work. So I look at I look at the conversations that we're having now, and I think that you're absolutely right, Marcus and Angie, you you know, you were saying the same thing that we can get stuck in this just this conversation mode and then not actually accomplish anything because we, as my mother will often say, we talk it to death. You know, we just talk about it. Um, so. I'm I'm wondering from your perspective here. I, first of all, let me say I think that this is really an opportunity, an opportunity for us to really build our sense of shared community through uh, the conversations around around reparations and really, Marcus, like you said, grappling with the past, really wrestling with it and and the meaning of it. But I'm interested in hearing from you and, and Ryan, Angie, from you and Ryan, as we get to the last few minutes of the show, that if you could advise, if you could advise the city leaders on, on a program of reparations, what advice would you give them as they're trying to, to put together something that will be a tangible program that could potentially make a difference? What would your suggestions be? I know that that's kind of a hard question, but I'm sure that you've got ideas. And, right, you know, as Marcus and I will say in the classroom, 
and I'm sure that Meredith has done the same thing. No idea is a dumb idea. You know, just put it out there. <laughs> uh, how about a word of a word of caution? Does that qualify okay. as advice? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the context for this um, is uh, an area where I work of environmental justice policy. And Marcus and Angie were talking about this this churn of going around and around, and 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 I think you phrased it talking the topic to death. Um, in, in this process of deciding uh, what a what an equitable outcome looks like, I'm I'm really interested in in who gets a say in what that mm-hmm. outcome is. Mm-hmm. So my 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 caution is um, that we pay special attention to whose voices matter, which we talked about before, but especially in these conversations, because vulnerable and marginalized people um, don't have a history of being included in these kinds of decisions. And they're they're often either patronized or have decisions made on their behalf. And this happens frequently in er in discussions around environmental justice, where a polluter or an agency will make a unilateral decision about what what justice looks like for this community. We're going to we're going to buy you this thing. And then it's a transaction. And in exchange, here's some pollution that you can deal with. But it's, it's just because we're giving you this thing. But maybe the community doesn't want that that thing. And so that's that's my caution is let's let's pay special attention to who's part of the conversation about what a just outcome looks like. All right. An important point. Angie, please join in. I was I at, at the risk of echoing Ryan, I was thinking about an interview that I saw recently with, um, you may know, uh, Reverend Brian Combs at the Haywood Street Congregation mm-hmm. here in Asheville. And I, I was listening to an interview with him, and he was particularly talking about the people in our community who um, don't have homes. And that is a, a particular focus of that mission of that congregation. But he said, in answer to a question, he said, well, don't try to help people without asking them what help looks like to them. Right. And, and and it's very similar to what Ryan was saying that that to make sure that these folks are at the table and to and to be um, and to understand that that makes this process more involved and more complicated and that there's not going to be one perfect answer that suits everybody at the end mm-hmm. and so there's going to be ambiguity and there's going to be messiness and um, that that that's just part of of getting to an getting to a form of answer that moves our community forward. Well, Angie and Ryan, we both thank you for that. And Marcus, I, I want to say here, we've got a couple of minutes. And one of the things I think that what we're witnessing here and the very thoughtful answers that Angie and Ryan are offering to this larger question is the enriching experience that the Friday Fellowship is actually is actually uh helping them to experience here. I mean, um, so I I want to ask them as we kind of kind of wind down to the end of the show that as they look forward to uh, the next uh, convening of the Friday Fellows, what Angie and Ryan, what are your expectations? I expect an opportunity to meet in person for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) We've been we've been virtual um, almost entirely virtual for the first, uh, we, well, we're, we're 
closing out the first year soon of the fellowship and mm -hmm. we've had some wonderful experiences but they've been almost entirely online mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i agree i am sorry yeah. go ahead meredith no yes i was just wanting to celebrate that as well it will be a joy to have you actually all in one place together and it might be i just want to lift this up for audience members who are not aware ryan and angie have been in a fellowship program together for a year but they haven't yet met in person and that is just an a new a unique uh, facet of of mm -hmm. navigating fellowship in these times so give me angie go ahead i was just gonna say i'm looking forward to the serendipity of finding myself in the lunch line next to ryan and getting to chat about something that we just experienced in the morning and not having everything um navigating through through these virtual platforms as helpful as they have been and marcus it's interesting because i don't think that anyone would have ever known that angie and ryan have not had a chance to meet each other in mm -hmm. person given the way that this conversation has flowed and i think that that speaks to the power of uh of the experience that Mer meredith has helped put together for the fellowship now i cut you off just a minute ago brother but let me let you jump in here because i think there was a point you wanted to make uh no not uh, not in particular i was just i was just wondering about um uh <laughs> um, we probably don't have time to dive into this, but just about an email that we received. Um, I think this is this was a lead-in uh, email prior to the reparation show, where um, a particular listener had had, had basically was basically making um, an argument against reparations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that email um, made me think about the question of, um, uh, well, you know, what about those who say that reparations is a divisive issue? Mm -hmm. um, and after all of our talk about the need to have conversations about reparations, um, given what's happening um, or what and what has happened and what is happening broadly in American society at the political level, um, you know, won't this just um, further stoke the flames of division um, mm -hmm. in this country? Uh, and so, so I'm just thinking about that question and how not, not only how, uh, you know, we on the show might might continue to respond to it, but also about um, maybe within the context of the Friday Fellowship um, experience, um, how that that uh, concern or how that issue might be um, addressed, not that it needs to be necessarily, but I'm just wondering about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how a conversation or in response to that, that uh, challenge to reparations, mm -hmm. uh, challenge to justice, I think, um, might unfold right, right. in a context like the fellowship. And it's really interesting, Marcus, because I think that that question is going to continue to rear its head, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's going to continue to live with us. And it will be interesting, you know, Meredith, you know, we've got a minute here. What do you think? How how might this kind of yeah. inform maybe some of the conversations that we'd have in the Friday Fellowship? Well, you know, we're I'm mindful that we're about a third, uh, a third of the way through our fellowship experience, and after seminar three, we'll be halfway through it. At have, we have six seminars, and so in this upcoming seminar, we'll actually let questions surface in the room. It is time now that we've built some foundations to practice uh, the art of questioning, and I'll be really curious to see which questions surface. We have 23 individuals from across the state who will raise questions differently about things that matter to them, and so we need to practice listening to the room. 
room mm -hmm. and then honoring where those questions take us, knowing that there are some questions we can't sidestep and there's some we need to take up together. And so it'll be a really interesting practice. I'm excited to um, move forward with the next set of shared tools on language that we'll be working through together. We have several dialogue texts on the horizon for the fellows to take up in small groups and then to really practice this work, not just of being in conversation, but then staying proximate to what comes out of those conversations to do the work of justice in the world, mm -hmm. right? It's not just the conversation, although that is also the work. We do believe that the fellowship seeks to, uh, to build competent conveners who can then go out in their communities mm -hmm. and take what they are hearing in these really intentionally designed spaces back into the world. And so mm -hmm. I'm mindful, Jackie Shelton Green recently said uh, in 2020, uh, addressing the Orange County Board of Commissioners, she said, I believe without community, there is no liberation. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that yeah, Meredith, thank you for sharing that. I think it's a really good way to kind of end this conversation. And Ryan and Angie, I want to thank you both. For, and I think on behalf of Marcus and I'm, you know, and myself for being willing to, to, uh, uh, to join the show today and join this conversation, especially about this particular topic. So thank you for, for the perspectives that you've offered today. Uh, we'll look forward to kind of following up with you as you continue to move through the fellowship and look forward to having you back here again. Marcus and I want to remind you that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter or write us at whshow at bpr.org. And we will talk to you next time. Take care. Mm -hmm.